Welcome to Week in Horror. You gotta be fucking kidding. The only podcast that will feed your horror need. The need to feed. With JL. Yeah, I'm a fucking masochist. I'll watch that shit. <laughs> Eugene. Somebody has to be the sex symbol. I'm sorry. <laughs> Alex. Shit, I just demonetize this forever. And Johnny O. How do you like that shit? Got half within a monologue. <laughs> Before unmuting myself. Golly, it's one of those fucking days. <laughs> With industry guests. Hi, this is Richard Oakes, director of host. Hey, this is Adam Leader, director of host. This is Matthew Mark Hunter. I'm Donna Nelly. And you're listening to Week in Horror. And you're listening to Week in Horror. And this is Week in Horror. And you're listening to Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! News, trivia, and more. One by one, we will take you. Join our live show Wednesdays at 7 central, youtube.com slash weekinhorror. And wherever you listen to podcasts, Week in Horror. Stay scared. Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It's Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast, the only podcast where the dead travel fast. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you can join us here on YouTube for our live show so you too can get in the bloody fun. What are you waiting for? Join us. This week we're covering select horror films released June 12th through June 18th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Eugene, and with me tonight are Aaron and JL. Hello, sickos. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. <laughs> See, I all right. I want to start off by saying that we have a couple of new patrons. Yes, yes we do. We have new patrons that we want to give a huge shout out to, and I'm going to bring up the banner as well. Boom, there's our Patreon banner. And of course, our new patrons are Angel Rivera and Diagnosis Horror, one of the cool cool name, cool as hell name. But uh, we want to thank you all. Thank you both for joining the Weekend Horror patron family. Your support helps to make this show possible. So thank you so much and everybody welcome Angel Rivera and Diagnosis Horror. Your names are down there in the banner. Some of our right big supporters. There. there you go. Other direction. That, there, there we go. Go this way. Go this direction. It always switched it around. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yes, uh, two new patrons. Thank you all so much. We do appreciate it. So, we got a bunch of stuff we want to talk about that we that we're going to dive into, and a bunch of stuff uh, that I pulled that I want to show the audience because they may not have seen it recently. But uh, before we do that, let's do a quick. Uh, I guess let's do a quick roll call, see who's in the chat real quick, and then we'll dive into a bunch of things. Let's see, we got Rodan No Less Names in the house. It's Gabba Gabba. Hey, everybody. Oh, and first, yes, you were. Gabba Gabba to you, Rodan No Less Name. Thank you so much for being here. Diagnosor, there he is, one of our amazing new patrons. Says, pretends two more people have done roll call. Sweet, I'm fourth 20. I've never learned to count property. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Don Warner's in the house. Says, president accounted for. Thank you so much for being here, Don. And Travis Brown as well. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. Jack Burton is in the house, who loves one of the movies we're going to be talking about tonight. Good to see you, Jack. Thank you so much. Uh, be safe out there in the Pork Chop Express. Good to see you. Good to see you. And I see Ivy Gifty's in the house. Is okay. I'm in a weird mood, but I'm here. Well, good to see Ivory. Thank you for hanging out with us. Same with Mystique Tina Jones. Getting up for work in four hours, but let's see how long I can stay awake. Hell yes. We thank yes. you for hanging out with us. But if you get tired, be sure to get some rest. 
All right, Surf is in the house. Good to see you, Surf. Thank you so much for being here as well. Says, hey, hey. All right, and Raven Darkstar as well. Good to see you, Raven. Says, hi and hello all. Good to see you, Raven. Brainy Beaver is here. Good to see you, Brandy Beaver says, how did I get here? Don't know how you got here, but I did see you subscribe the other day. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. We're so, just glad you are here. Brandy rocks. Brandy rocks. He can't spell, but he rocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inside joke. It's an inside joke. But good to see you, Brandy. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Sarcasm's in the house. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Oh, man. I got a bunch of amazing people in the house. Fan freaking tastic. Oh, I'm missing something. Yes, and Sarcasm is another one of our amazing patrons. Brandy Beaver says, well, both could be true. Yeah, this is true. Let me see here. Who else we got in the house? Oh, it jumped on me. I hate when it jumps on me. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. I got to scroll back to it. And there he is. Charlie Welch is in the house. Another one of our amazing patrons. And the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Charlie Welch, good to see you. Thank you so much for hanging out. Yep, wrote another name. You're right. We got Beaver. We finally got some Beaver. It only took two and a half seasons, but we finally got some Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> uh charlie Welch says fuck this fucking elden ring jesus well back to the elden ring <laughs> i have heard <laughs> i have heard stories i have heard stories good sir mr malord's in the house all the way from chicago to teach my daughter to drive i feel like michael kane in the hand <laughs> good to see you uh good to see you mr malord be safe out there brandy says brandy Beaver says yeah i spell like shit <laughs> it's okay and yes, you do have you do have us on Discord. I think I think you do. I'm pretty sure you do. Let me see here. If I do this and I do a quick invite, I can do that. And if you're not a part of our Discord, then now you can be. So, yeah, so oh, Raven Darkstar says, Weekend Horror. I have now seen Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City and the original Friday the thirteenth. Congratulations. Nice. Awesome. Very good on the original Friday 13th. Um, welcome to Raccoon City. If you're a big fan of Resident Evil, then I'm sure you enjoyed it. If not, eh, you know. Eh. But, well, I mean, if you were a big fan of the games, I'm sure you loved it. But if you weren't so much, then, you know. But it still wasn't terrible. It could have been, been worse. I mean, really, it could have been worse. Well, the, as far the, as the adaptations go. The important thing is, is you watching horror movies. That's the important thing. That's the important thing. That's the important takeaway. All right, and I see we got up this. He's in juice in the house. Hello, everyone. I wasn't late. I was grabbing food. I swear. We believe you. We will always be. We will always believe you. We're ready to believe you. No, I know Johnny was here. He jumped on that. <laughs> yes, I know Aaron got it. I heard that laugh. <laughs> We're ready to believe you. Um, Angel Rivera, good to see you. And I see, I think that's it. I think I'm all caught up. Fantastic. All right, so bunch of stuff that I want to show everybody but first before we jump into everything I might want to jump back to the script so I know what the hell I'm talking about what have we got here all right so the first and foremost we have our new bloodbath debate coming up bloodbath debate for this month bloodbath number 31 and we're going to do the coin toss tonight so which is this is actually really cool because we're adding a new person to the roster of to the the kind of uh, I guess the uh I guess it would be the roster of debaters. And Angela will be joining the debate roster. So she will be taking on her first debate against me because I won the Bloodbath 30. She'll be taking uh, taking me and we will be debating... Oh No, I announced it to the pages. I can announce it here. Bloodbath 31 will be Hobgoblins versus Ghoulies. So if you remember those movies, really, really fun, goofy 
gloppy monster movies. They were like, yeah, I love them. I grew up with them. I think they're hilarious. But we don't know who's going to represent who. So we're going to do the coin toss tonight. So Eugene, you've got the coin. All right. Unfortunately, we don't have our trusty Texas Frightmare coin. So we have to settle for a regular coin. That's true because I didn't. Oh, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it myself because I, I you know, because Johnny accuses me of cheating like all a the cheating time. bastard. Because I've got the coin here, but Eugene doesn't have one. Johnny's got one, and I've got one. But I didn't want Johnny to accuse me of cheating again. So, because he always does it every time I win <laughs> for like the fifteenth time. Because he's a he's a he's a sorry loser. He's a sad loser. Poor loser that man. But uh, but we love him over here. But I, I so Eugene's gonna flip the coin because I won the last uh, bloodbath. I'm gonna call it in the air, and the winner of this will get to choose who they want. So if Angela wins, then she's gonna be able. She's gonna get to choose which one she wants to represent. She wants ghoulies or she wants hobgoblins. Hopefully she takes Ghoul. I think she might take Ghoulies because there's more movies to, or she she'll take Hobgoblins because there's less movies to watch in that. But uh, go ahead, Eugene, whenever you're ready. All right, we have our standard quarter right here. Tails, awesome. heads. Get her out of there. All right. Awesome. Jail. Call in the air. Tails never fails. The answer is heads. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Tails does fail. Tails fails. I should have gone with heads. I knew it. I should have gone with heads. All right, so that means Angela is going to get to choose who she wants, and I will take the other one. So uh, it doesn't matter. She's. I'm going to beat her anyway. So <laughs> don't, don't. She's gonna, I shouldn't have said that because she's going to hear it when she goes to edit the episode. <laughs> She's no matter what happens, it. you're going to lose. You realize Yeah, that, no matter right? what. No, no, Whoever wins, we lose. Yeah, <laughs> this is very true. So, uh, but uh, cool. So she will decide who she wants to take, and then I will get the leftovers. And then we're going to do that bloodbath debate, and it's going to be a lot of fun to see who wins between hobgoblins and ghoulies, who you know, are gloppy puppet monsters. All right. So after, so after that, I know you guys probably haven't seen this yet, and I know our audience probably hasn't seen it, so we're going to get through these because we got a bunch of stuff I want to show y'all. So we're going to move quick so we can get to the movies we're going to talk to tonight. Um, we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm just I I there's I have no way to set this up, but we're just going to take a look at it. The first teaser for Rob Zombie's Monsters is out. Yeah, let's go ahead and watch this. Here we go. So there's no, you just got to rip the bandaid off. You just got to rip the bandaid yeah, off. You, so you here we go. The, punch in the, face. the first teaser for Munsters. Let us know in the live chat what you think. Or maybe in the comments below because it might be too salty in the live chat. So let's find out. <laughs> okay, quick thoughts. <laughs> he spoke for the entire audience was like, now what? Like, I'm just like, I, I, I don't know what that was supposed to be. <laughs> They're taking the piss, man. It's like somebody took Tim Burton's Dark Shadows and took a shit on it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I can already see it coming in. Raven Darkstar says, "Ew." Jack Burton says, uh, "says Raven Darkstar says, ew." Jack Burton says, uh, "Already hate it." Yeah, yeah. Travis Brown wonders where the hell is Eddie Munster. Now, oh, Jason Hyatt's in the house. Good to see Jason Hyatt says, why? <laughs> Damn, Skippy. Wrote in the last name says, as long as I get cam uh, Campy 50 schlock, I'll be happy. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, the oh, Raven Doctor says, this can't be real. Unfortunately, it is real. And we had, lo we had low expectations. And fr from the start, when we first heard about this, when we first, when we first showed a set, the first set picture from the Munsters, Said we had low expectations, and Rob Zombie has seen fit 
to prove that we thought too highly of this. So he has completely <laughs> shattered our low expectations. And um, I don't I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Um, it it, don't, it honestly looks either. it honestly looks like something you'd make to troll people. Yeah, like yeah, it, it, like at the end of the movie, Rob Zombie's gonna be like, oh, "Got you," and give you like a middle finger, and then like that's. Then we could all laugh. We could all laugh, and it would be like plain straight automobiles. <laughs> we could laugh about it now. We're all right. So I don't don't know where this is gonna go. Um, we're all a little terrified. So, uh, but yeah. So let us know what you think of that tray of that of that in the comments below, or of course in the live the live chat. Pretty much. Uh, rejected it travis brown says why the why does herman look still look like a juggalo <laughs> well, it's a spoof of a spoof because the original was joking around about you know monsters was playing off on that well now they're playing off on that and it's like you, you sir have gone too meta okay you need <laughs> to back <laughs> off now <laughs> this is true yes raven darkstar says what a way to ruin a good thing I don't know what's going to play out. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but there you go. There's the teaser for it. Now, we have another thing coming up I want to get people's take on is we showed the teaser for this a couple of weeks ago, and now now the full trailer's out. So now that there's a little bit more context and you guys can see it, let's check out the trailer for Prey. All right. First trailer for Prey is out. Got some potential. Definitely <laughs> looks like it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of excited for it. After this trailer, I'm I'm kind of probably kind of like I was thinking, it you know, and it wrote another name says it can't be worse than AVP. Just saying, and and agree for that, and I, I would agree with that. Um, and I, I was kind of when at first I was like, you know, Predator is like Predator, Predator versus Native Americans. Like, really, is that where we're gonna go? But I kind of like where they're going with this. I kind of dig that. Um, and I didn't realize they were gonna bring in uh you know white settlers. Or I look, what they look to be like, I guess, fur trappers is what it looks to be. So this may yeah. be taking place up like in Canada or somewhere or somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm really curious about this. Um, I'm I'm more excited after after this trailer dropped. I'm more excited about this. Yeah, same here. I'm definitely more excited about it. Um, I've actually been kind of jonesing for a new kind of Native American horror film. I think that's a market that hasn't been tapped very often. Um, something outside of track of the moon beast, but something like, <laughs> but something actually like having that Native American culture culture fighting against something, and it's interesting because they are typically the hunters because that's how they that's like the trailer says that they just survive the survival hunting bison and um, the animals stuff like that, and then on turn them being hunted. Second of all, you strip away all the modern weapons. That's right. what we've seen constantly is just modern weaponry, explosives, machine guns, and all this other kind of stuff. It's like, now how do you fight the Predator with bows and arrows or a flintlock musket? I'm I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting. And the bear scene looks really interesting, too. Looks like an interesting it's, stuff. And I'm, I'm Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. I was going to say, there's a whole gap because we've started, the, you know, they went through and did the whole Dirty West era because the old westerns were always the good guy and white, the black bad guy with the black hat and stuff. And we went through and we redid in a lot of different ways the West, dirty or more honest West, but there's still a huge gap before that with colonial America and pre-white America. And some people, they complain because they're like, oh, I don't want anything that's woke or anything. No, I don't want anything that's just playing it for the profit, but there is 
huge section of history completely unexplored that I I love them. Like the wit was very honest in how I dug into that, and I definitely want to see more of that. So it's got some serious potential. I'm liking. I'm liking what I'm seeing. Travis Brown says, already bored of the Predator series now. This one might hold up, though. Let's find out. Um, Mr. Malord says, I'm seeing it regardless. Agreed. We, uh, we will as well. Jack mm-hmm. Burns says, I want to like this, but if it's a one-sided bloodbath, the protagonist wins by the skin of her teeth through sheer courage of wit, it will suck. Um, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. I really, really am. Um, I do love that scene where the Predator has the tomahawk and flips it and smokes it. That was, that, that was pretty sick. I kind of dig that. Um I'm excited for it. I, I like what I see so far, and uh, I'm kind of I I, I want to see where it's going to go because it gives you it, the trailer gives a bunch, but it obviously doesn't give uh, it doesn't really give a lot away. So I'm curious where this is going to go with this one. So um, definitely leave your thoughts on the new trailer for Prey in the comments below, or of course uh, we've seen your uh, comments there, and it looks like it's positive, a positive reception for this. Rodan Ellis names is friggin' Canadian predators after they rip your spine out, they chitter. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and eugene don't think i didn't see what you did there with the native american yeah <laughs> more on that to come um and the last thing we're going to take a look at before we get in before we dive into tonight's movies um is this one a new trailer because i am a huge fan and i know we all are of guillermo del toro there is nothing that man has not done there's nothing that man has done that I have not fallen in love with. Everything. All for going all the way back to, uh, um, what was it? Oh, damn it. Uh, not the orphanage before that. Um, God, oh, what was the name of it? The Devil's Backbone, something the like that? The Devil's Backbone. Okay. That was it. Going all the way back to Devil's Backbone, Kronos, and then all the way up today to you know things like Shape of Water and everything he's done, Pan's Labyrinth, Mimic. I've loved them all. I've loved everything Del Toro's put his hands on. Um, even the one about the even the one uh, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the uh, the one with the the fairies that live in the house. So even them, I, I've loved everything. I love the way he yeah, the love the way he shoots a movie. I love the way his uh, his imagination flows into it. He's a visual uh, artist. He's incredible, and he is delivering a new anthology series called Del Toro. It's called Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, and uh, we have the trailer here. So let's take a look at this. Just a quick little teaser there. What y'all think? I love I I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. Like I'm just, I'm sold right I, there, I'm, right there. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so. One of the things I'm sold on is, is the wide range of directors that are directing the episode. Because I mean, you're talking about things like the Baba Do Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That's an mm-hmm. Iranian film. Yeah, like like an Iranian Western film. Yeah, and so yeah, you, that means you're bringing in. So he's bringing in American directors, British directors, you know, him being uh, Spanish, Iranian directors that are coming in, and the, just the list of the movies that are like boom, 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 boom. I was like, well, if okay, he has a if he's got a weakness, so he is extremely visually strong. If there's a weakness with him, it's plot wise. Um, sometimes he's like Argento in that way, where sometimes the visuals are better than the plot if i can get if there is a criticism for his film because he's not had a good one but bringing in all of those producers directors writers to assist him with that from all of those that should just knock it right out of the park 
Yeah. And I do want to bring up, yes, uh, yeah, Don Warner says Chris McGlover slowly coming back. Chris McGlover's always in the back of our imaginations. We can't help it, you know, ever since he was the creepy thin man in Charlie's Angels. But I love Chris McGlover. And, or ever since Back to the Future, he's always been, he was George McFly. He's always been in the back of our minds. But I love Chris McGlover. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to where this goes. And I just want to say, someone says, Ivy Gensher said, lost me at Twilight. Well, it's the director of Twilight, which is Catherine Hardwick. And Catherine Hardwick has a lot of really good productions. She uh, she, uh, she directed uh, Thirteen. She directed Lords of Dogtown, um, Red Riding Hood with Amanda Seyfried, and um, I think Plush and Miss You Already. So she's had uh, like some amazing work that she's done um, over the years. And so I did. I know she directed Twilight. But if you know the story behind Twilight and why those movies really didn't work is because the input of the studio and the input of the author made those apparently nightmares to, to shoot. So it w wasn't really her fault in that respect. But she has an amazing track record. Not, not to mention the director of Mandy, Panos Cosmatos, uh, the director of The Vigil, director of Babadook. It's going to be, I think it's going to be absolutely awesome. And I cannot wait. And it, it's everything Del Toro drops is just wetting my appetite for when he eventually gets to do at the mountains at the at the mountains of madness, which is what we want. We want Del Toro's at the mountains of madness. So, and we just keep getting a little bit more Lovecrafty and a little bit more Lovecrafty until eventually, hopefully, one day we get that. But I mean, absolutely, I'm going to be. I'm really excited about it. It looks like an amazing cast to uh, a nice just anthology. Anthology series are coming back. Definitely, it's, it's really nice to see that. Oh, and I see, yep, Johnny O has jumped in there, says, hello, all of you horror fiends. Good to see you, uh, good to see you, Johnny. Thanks for hanging out, man. Uh, let me see here. Um, and I think, I didn't see, uh, did I see something new? No, Jack Burton says, Chris McGlover will always be the Beatle driving spaz listening to Slayer in the River's Edge to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Very true, very true. All right, so I wanted to check out those ones. I wanted to show those. Uh, I think everybody, I do some cool stuff coming up, some not so, some questionable monster stuff coming up. But uh, I hope you all enjoyed those. Let us know what you think of them, what you think of the trailers that we show down there in the comments below. Or of course, in the, uh, we love what you hear and what you have to say in the live chat. Nemo 813's in the house. Is, yes, we want that. Absolutely, we want that. Can't get enough Del Toro. So, all right. Um, that was it. That's pretty much all we had to kick off. All right. So then we're, we're here to talk about what you actually want us to talk about. Yes. The horror films. Horror movies that released this week. What released yes. this week? What what weird obscurities did we find? And we we found some. We found some good ones. We did we have some good ones today. So Aaron, go ahead and start us off. All right. First up from June 12, 2009, we have Doghouse. Yeah, trailer. <laughs> uh. All right, so it's directed by Jake West, written by Dan Shaver, starring Danny Dyer, Noel Clark, Mio Marwa, Lee Ingleby, and Keith Lee Castle. And in summary, it's basically about a group of guys that head to a small village to cheer their friend up and distract him from the fact he's getting divorced, and every guy there is dead, and everyone there is some terrible hellish demon zombie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fun ensues from there. But uh, it's it, it's definitely a different sort of movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to say this. Don Warner said in there, pissed off man-hating cannibals is my new band name. They actually left a word out of that. It's a pissed off man-hating feminist cannibals, 
was actually the name was actually what he called them, but they left that out of the trailer. Um, but yeah, that's an excellent band name. That's a good band name. You should write that down. Um, and uh, Travis Brown is a Shaun of the Dead ripoff. So we're going to dive into that. Um, so I, I watched this movie and I knew a bit about it beforehand. And I and yes, you're you're not wrong. The film is. In my personal opinion, it's is that comedy is about the things that obviously that make can make us uncomfortable, and we try to look at things in a humorous light. This movie definitely tries to do this. Um, while while Shaun of the Dead was a romance with was a love story with zombies, this is definitely not that. But this is definitely your alpha male misogynistic kind of take on this where all of the zombies are female and how to deal with the situation and is it PC is it still PC to you know beat up on girls and stuff like this into but the film is deeply misogynistic but it is also extremely funny I really really like this one and I think it's good to do this that this is what the horror genre does best is it takes that which kind of make you would you know especially top of this was 2009 when this came out and these conversations are beginning to be had. But I think that when taken to its most absurd extreme, I don't think that there's anything that's taboo. I think that even things like this, as deeply misogynistic as the film can be, um, it's a, it's laughing at itself. It's saying that in the most extreme situations, even in the most extreme, all of the women are turned into these mutant, you know, man-eating cannibals. And, you know, you're literally you know, doing what you saw in the trailer. And yet we will still stop and question ourselves about, oh, should I, you know, should I do this? Should I, you know, hit the, you know, hit him with a golf club or should I do something, you know, do something violent to them? Like it, it, it makes fun of that. It's like, even in a situation as extreme as that, we would still stop and question ourselves before we engage the zombies. So I thought that that, that was funny to me. Not to mention Stephen Graham is LA, all of them. The entire cast was magnificent in it. So, but I like it. I like, I like touchy subjects being, you know, being funny. Well, it's a nice allegory for what the guy, the, I guess you call the main characters going through that's been divorced. He is kind of the majority focus of the film, but when you're just getting divorced or through a breakup and your friends take you out, it's the whole, all women are evil, they just don't get you, it wasn't your fault because you're still adjusting and adapting. Later on, you can go through the whole phase of figuring out what you did wrong and getting better about it and stuff, but it, it, it runs with that completely because literally all women are now evil and whatever you do is justified. And They're all man-eaters. Yeah, it's and it, there's there's a couple of uncomfortable lines like the feminists. I'm like, did you really need to go there? But the guy that did it, I mean, he's a douchebag. You know he's a douchebag, but he's that friend that, like, you can't get rid of him because you've known him for 20 years. and right. You're just not mean enough to be like, you're a dickhead, go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see that a couple more people have jumped in. I saw Commander Darklight's in the house. Good to see you, Commander Darklight. One of our amazing patrons says, hey, guys, good to see you, Commander Darklight. And Tony Regime as well. Good to see you, Tony Regime. And and the George said, good to see you, and the George said. Thank you all so much for being here. Appreciate it. So, and oh, yeah, Rodanella's name says, to quote Deadpool, is shooting you, is, is it sexist to shoot you? Is it sexist not to shoot you? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so one uh, thing one thing you have when it comes to horror movies, especially horror movies that deal with issues such as this, is you always take it to the extreme. 
that's mm-hmm. just that's just the nature of the beast it's like a okay if it's a little here let's just push it as far as we can go so not only are women the enemy they're going to try to kill you and they're going to try to eat you and stab you with swords and all kinds of and all kinds <laughs> of stuff and and let's just see how we deal with it and so you can take you can take a subject like this and turn it into a funny into a funny thing because i did mean, and play, playing on the tropes, the scene in the the scene in the church when they're discussing who who the, who was ha- who they thought was hottest of the ma- of the cannibalistic mutated zombie women outside, if it, it immediately fall when they're all alone, all the guys are by themselves, it, 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 they immediately fall into their old tropes of talking about who is hottest. It's like who would do who. It was like you know I have to admit she was pretty she was pretty fine. And she was like, she was gonna look at which one. Which, oh, I really like the one. I really like the one in the dress. And she, one of the zombies is wearing a wedding dress. She's in her wedding dress, and, it, and he's like, I really like the one in the dress. And everyone else was like, she's married. She's she's a zombie. It doesn't matter. But technically, she's not. She's a widow. But <laughs> this is true. This is true. And I think one of the best. Well, I think the 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 two the two moments that uh, that got me that got me and speak the most as to why we need things like this and why it, it's best to look at it from the look. It's always good to have this kind of perspective on it. Was the scene when they're planning their escape, and all of a sudden the most alpha male of the group, the guy who did the 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 feminist line, who gave the band name there. He say he he questions going to going to an act, and they're all like, "Now is not the time to be a new man." Right now, we need you to be the alpha. We need you to be the the misogynistic, narcissistic asshole that we love. You know, you know, is now is not the time to turn over a new leaf. We need you. And then at the very end, uh, Steve, uh, Stephen Graham's character, uh, is when he goes to the when he when he has this kind of like dawning realization that all, all of the members of the group that respect women and were were hesitant to be as violent as they need be in order to survive the situation, they're all dead. All of the guys that are angry with women or disrespect them or have no problems with it, they're all the survivors. And he he relates this to how nice guys finish last. How they get taken advantage of and they get trotted on and they eventually, eventually, you know, the girls that are with, they get bored. And then eventually they just get left, you know, basically left or you know, put out to pasture. And the girls move on to somebody else. But it's the douchebags are the ones that actually make it to the end of the douchebag and the gay guy. <laughs> the douchebags and the gay guy who make it to the end and actually manage to survive, which I thought was, it's it's so it's so dark, but so it's so poignant in this respect is how <laughs> it's how you feel after every breakup. You're just like they're evil, never doing it again. Screw it, and then they. They go run with it completely, and of course, I mean, it's a bunch of guys. When you're around your guy friends that you've known forever, even if you're not out trying to get laid, you're still talking about women. You're still making the jokes. You turn mm-hmm. back into the teenager you were when you first met them and everything, and you, you saying you do things that you would be ashamed for your wife to find out about. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of true. Like, it pushes it. It definitely pushes it, but horror is hyperbole. I mean, that's the point, is push it till it's so obvious you cannot miss it. Um, and there's, but it's there's, dead there's, on. <laughs> it really, really is. The, the 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 now a lot of people brought up, and there were a lot of complaints about this when it came out. Obviously, and you can tell just from the trailer that there are parallels with Shaun of the Dead that they they utilized. And they and when I you know watching the movie, it was like holy shit, 
That's exactly like Shaun of the Dead. Exactly. And there were so many moments from not only from the from the action sequences, but down to the like the the going through backyards, trying to navigate backyards to get away from the zombies. To not only from the action scenes, but from the dialogue in and of itself. And that I can understand why people would find problematic. But as filmmakers, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, I think Eugene will agree with me on this. Is that if you're going to steal, steal from the best and steal what works. And this is a new kind of trope. It's not a love story. It's very much an alpha male bros. It's very much a bro story in this respect. It just runs along the same tropes, which I think is fine. It worked. It doesn't. It doesn't take away from it. That's my opinion. And I think that there's a time and place for it. And this then this would work for it. I think it does. They ran with what worked, and it made for an enjoyable movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, Aaron, go ahead. go ahead. I was just gonna say. I mean, it's a sub sub genre. Every really great movie spawns that. And it's just a matter of how far you tread into it. Hmm. Yeah, they technically they did some of the same or very similar scenes, Sean Dead and stuff. But I think they did enough original work here. They mixed it up enough as to when who got killed and how, and they had enough individual fun with it that I don't think it's a copy. I think it's an homage at work. I, w- I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I mean, because Shaun of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead is such a, uh, such a monumental film on it, and there's nothing wrong with taking pieces of that. Um, you look at a lot of directors, a lot of directors pull pieces from films all the time. Quentin Tarantino is notorious. Everybody says how original Quentin Tarantino is. No, he just pulls from so many movies, most of movies which people haven't heard of, so it mm-hmm. looks original um, instead of things like, you know, um, Argento and all this other kind of stuff. And so there's nothing wrong with pulling from what works and pulling from it. If they made it beat for beat, where all of a sudden, oh well, there is a love story and they hold up like this and everything, then you can kind of you can kind of push that boundary a little bit. But you just came out with first of all, it came out with about five years after Shaun of the Dead. Um, and you don't have the love story. This is kind of like the anti-reverse love story. Right. On it. So I was okay with it. Just because a zombie movie's fun doesn't mean it's a rip off of Shaun of the Dead. And they have the and there's the classic. I mean, and, and everything along there from the you know, the from the obliviousness of guys walking around, like the whole sequence when Shaun is walking through the neighborhood at post post apocalypse and doesn't see anything for what it is. Just he's so in his own. And, and the same thing occurs here. The conversation with the guys. You've got your Shaun character. You've got your uh, you've got your um, Ed character. You've got. You, you mirror the characters all around, and then you just flip the script, and it's like, this is more for the bros, and it's not really a love story in and of itself. But I think it works, and it played to it extremely well, and I think uh, Tony Regine says it can't be worse than lesbian vampire killers. Um, it was not. It was not. I really, really enjoyed I really enjoyed uh, this one. I thought it was fun, and you'll you'll notice, like I said, like, like Aaron was saying, you'll spot these moments. You'll be like, oh, I see where they got that. Oh, I see where they did that. And, but really, all in all, it's, uh, and there's no, like, super, super, like, you know, crazy camera stuff, or it was basically, you know, standard, your standard boilerplate cinematography, good direction, really, this comes down to the acting. It comes down to having six guys, technically seven if you count Banksy, but you have six dudes, and the camaraderie they have between them, and then, of course, and being able to pull off scenes where they all dress in drag, in order to avoid, in order to, because just like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and they did up the one. They did up the one mannequin to look like a guy, and it's like ah. 
and they all have babies like and, and then the, 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 the tropes like how they're walking <laughs> and so masquerading as women so they can get past the zombies and so I love what they did with it they I mean it's a it's not really a super big risk taking film but it's fun and it's funny and it's fun to imagine this this particular story. this is what horror does best is it takes something that maybe makes people a little uncomfortable, topics that they may not want to touch on, and it puts it in such an absurd light that we can look at it, similar to like a lot of like like shock, like shock comedians like Bill Burr, you know that they just say here it is in your face and this is why it's funny, so we can all laugh at this, you know it's not as serious as we as we like as we may think it is or it doesn't need to be as serious as we think it is. And so I, I love that the, the most of this is I was like, okay, because we can address this. Because we've talked about misogynistic films in the past. Fucking Rattlers was just like, shut up, bitch. You don't know what you're doing. It was like, what the fuck? And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry for speaking out of turn, sir. So we've seen really terrible misogynistic movies that came out of the, that came out of the 70s and the 80s. This one pokes fun at all of it. And I absolutely love this one. I, I thought I'll laugh my ass off. Hey, Cindy Johnson, good to see you. Says good evening, all. I really love watching, listening to you all. I really love this genre. Thank you so much, Cindy. We do appreciate it. I I do have to say that I've seen lesbian vampire killers. Man, that's a bad movie. That Not is a, great. That is a bad. It does have Jesus Christ in it, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, this one's a good one. I don't think anybody should miss it. It's currently up on Amazon Prime, so anybody can go. If you've got a Prime account, it's there for free. You don't have to rent it. You can go and check it out. But this one's funny as hell. I really, really, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. And it was weird because it took me a long time to get to it. And I was kind of like, because, you know, I just was like, because uh, British comedy, you know, it, it's it's hit or miss. You know, it, you know, you don't hear like a whole bunch, especially the, especially the horror comedies coming out. But this one was good. I can only think of like three. I think Shaun of the Dead, uh, Attack the Block. And, of course, I'll add this one to the list, Doghouse, which is really, really good. They're, and they're honest about the fact that it's an homage in their approach, too, because you see in Shaun of the Dead and all the other films, of all three in the Cornetto trilogy, that they put little hints and stuff along the way. Like um, in Hot Fuzz, you know, the order that he ends up engaging the people, townspeople, is the order he meets them and stuff. But if you notice in this one, every single store had a name that was applicable at one point or another. So, like, the magic shop, or whatever you want to call it, was the Burning Witch. <laughs> the and Burning the Witch! That on fire. <laughs> that shit, la- that sh- I, I laughed my ass off at that, because it was like, hey, look at that! <laughs> and the, the, the clothing store was fashion victims, and they came walking out dressed as women, and it's just all over the plate there, the place. The butchers would just meet in big letters, and you walk in, and there's guys, pieces of guys just hanging everywhere. So they're very, they, they didn't pretend at all that this was, you know, we're, we're going after this crowd, after this genre. And uh, speaking of, so what we want to know is your favorite type of zombie. Uh, you can email us at weekendhorror at gmail.com, drop it in the comments, or in the live chat. There's so many different kinds. You got magic zombies, you got viral zombies, you got like space spore zombies, you've got rage zombies, you've got fast zombies, slow zombies. I there's so many different kinds. You already got, you know, bioweapon zombies. I'm kind of curious. Voodoo zombies, too. So many different kinds of zombies. And I'm kind of curious as to uh, as to what what which what which people di- uh, uh what kinds people dig. Tony Regime says you forgot Grabbers. Grabbers is an Irish horror film. 
Because that was in Ireland, where they're all drunk. And that was particularly hilarious, because the only way to fight the aliens was to be inebriated. They find out it's to be inebriated, which is what's hilarious about that. Because then you have, like, aliens attacking, you know, the town. And the only way, and the aliens suck you dry. They suck all the, the moisture and all the water out of you. And then the only way to not have them do that is to be drunk. So the entire town, in order to fight them, has to be shit-faced the entire time. <laughs> and watching drunk people in a horror movie is always hilarious. Because it no flips a trope. <laughs> Typically, if you're drunk, you die. But in, not in this one. If you're drunk, you live. And I thought it was that was absolutely hysterical. All right. Up next, we have got... Uh, this one is a class... Oh, we, oh, oh, wow, they're coming in. So I've got a lot of love for Resident Evil Zombies, Travis Brown... Jared R. Human is in the house. Good to see you, Jared R. Human. Says, bioweapon zombie. Sudden chaos ensues, my favorite. Absolutely. Bio and yeah. thank you, Jared, for being here as well. We do appreciate it. Mr. Lord says, boys from County Hell. Good Irish horror, even better Pogue song. Fucking A. Hell yes. Nice. Ooh, uh, um, Red Snow was also, or, or Dead Snow, was it? Uh, was it oh, Red Snow? Uh, Dead, Dead Snow? Snow? Dead Snow with the Nazi With the Nazi zombies. Yeah. It was Dead Snow 2, Red versus Dead or something like that. I can't remember like that, but I remember that the Dead Snow uh, movies were fantastic as well. All right, so this next one we have coming up is a classic released June 15th, 1973. We have The Legend of Hell House. Let's check out this trailer. Damn, such a friggin' good movie. This really was. So, directed by John uh, John Huff, written by Richard Matheson, and starring Pamela Franklin, Roddy McDowell, Clive Revel, and Gail Honeycutt. And yes, Jack Burton, you're right. Uh, Gail Honeycutt looking fine as hell right there. And yes, he also says, never accuse Roddy McDowell of phoning it in. No, that man went full tilt. Full tilt Roddy McDowell in this particular movie. Um, and that scene when, when the when the, the house is trying to kill um, Dr. Lionel. Oh, I love, fucking love that scene. It's just like, man, I'm just trying to take him out. But yeah, the, group, the, the movie stands, uh, follows a group of researchers who spend a week in the former home of a sadist and murderer whose previous paranormal, uh, where previous paranormal investigators um, are oft in gruesome ways. Um, and uh, the film is actually an adaptation of uh, Matheson's book, of Richard Matheson's book, uh, his 1971 novel, Hell House, which in turn is adapted from, uh, from uh, the work of Shirley Jackson. So, but this particular film... I it, there's so much to say. Okay, first and foremost, everything about it absolutely classic. And there were some comments in there about it being um, about being kind of ham. But that uh, it, what what seems in the trailers to be like overacting plays into this. This is a classic, beautifully shot, wonderfully rented uh, haunted house story. Um, everything they bring into it, uh, from the acting to the cinematography to the, the moreover the set design was brilliant. The house is magnificent. Um, I love this just for the classic tale it tells. So there was another one we talked about before, which shot in New Mexico at that ma at a mansion in New Mexico. Um, oh yeah, we talked that came about out in the eighties. Yeah, I, I know the one you're talking because they filmed all of it at one house. Right. Yeah. It was. A, oh well, Lord, I'll, I'll remember it here in a moment. But it, I got the feel of that from this. What, the atmosphere. The 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 uh, the pervasive sense of dread and foreboding. It was absolutely brilliant. So I love a good classic haunted house story, um, and I think this one was beautifully done. I mean, that's what I agree. One of the one of the key things of when you're doing a haunted house story is the house. The house has to be a character in of itself. You have to have a good looking 
cinematic house. If you have some boring, small house, it, you can't sell the story. And I love um, a quote from Mike Flanagan, who said, you can never have a house that's too horror looking. You, you can never have a house that's like, man, that looks too much like a horror house. You need to scale that back some on it. No, lean into it, go hard, uh, spend the money on it. And that's exactly what it is. The house looks beautiful because it lends beautiful to the cinematography on it. And then I want to go, the practical effects here are top notch, amazing. I mean, I'm talking, especially the scene where you're getting like the living room destroyed, the fire coming out of the fireplace, mm -hmm. and you have dishes and the chandelier falling down, and, and it all looks top notch in terms of its uh, special effects on it. It's just, it's, this is just a great film. Within the haunted house genre, too, this is something I've, you, you can read about it. It's in Dance Macabre. They talk by Stephen King. He talks a little about it and stuff, is you can actually break it down. And you've got your standard haunted house, which is it has spirits in it that haunt it and turn it haunted. And that does play in here. And at the ending, it gets even more into it. But there's also the genre where the house itself is evil. And it talks about it a lot more in the book, what the guy that owned this house before um, all of this, for his disappearance, did to basically invest evil in this house. So the house itself is the center most evil character and they spin that um to a degree but i absolutely love the genre and this one hits the nail on the head this is this and the thing bounce back and forth as my favorite films just depending on whether i want something with a deep atmosphere or you know people getting ripped apart by an evil alien <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah they did you can never get everything from the book into a movie um but they did an amazing job with this one, and they really got every single point wrong that the book had. So that's why it's up there for me. The important, I think, the important thing on this, and Mr. Malord brings it up in the chats, is the haunting best horror movie hands down. Um, if you're talking about the one with Liam Neeson, I'm not sure about that, but you are correct. Shirley Jackson made the house a character, and that is what is that is what is most important. And Shirley Jackson's work, her 1959 novel, uh, uh, 1959 novel, The Haunting of Hill House, is kind of where this where this kind of psychological horror uh, spawned off. And you've got we've gotten you know dozens of adaptations uh, over the years. Uh, you know Matheson's own inspiration for the for Hell House was uh, inspired by this and was inspired by Jackson's work. And in Jackson's work, the house was as much of a character as any of the people that were in it. And you can almost tell it you know get a sense of the story from the house's perspective. And that's what makes her work so seminal and why so many people have adapted it. Everything from uh, the haunting at Hill House, the the super super gory one with um with uh jeffrey combs all the way to flanagan's recent uh the haunting of hill house and the haunting of bly manor which are you know essentially taken from jackson's work as well so and that's what makes it so well is because what what makes this one great is not only the actors within i thought everyone's performance in this was was top notch because they were all balanced they all balanced each other out roddy's energy is balanced out by everybody else and because everyone brings their own, especially when the when the you know, the spirits start getting involved and people start getting you know taken over and all the violence keeps you know, is going crazy in the house. I love that the house itself has its uh, is is literally what Aaron said is the character in and of itself. And you want because the house doesn't speak in a matter of words, you need to have that depth. 
and that is where your art department comes in. That's where the set design comes in. It's where you're where you're shooting and what is this place going to look like on the inside. And I loved the richness of this in setting the whole thing up so that we would have this beautiful baroque gothic mansion um, that would set the stage for this. Now, you know, and something that's realistic in the sense because I always thought the one in the haunting, the Liam Neeson, Lily Taylor, Catherine Zeta Jones, I always thought that one was just too over the top was that house was a little bit too extreme. This one, absolutely perfect. And it plays its role significantly well. And like Eugene said, the effects, absolutely stunning. I loved the sequences. They played out very, very well. And just a wonderful little, like, you know, like scary little movie that you wouldn't expect. Because you expect something like this with like Vincent Price or Christopher Lee. But, you know, Rodney McDowell got to love him. Well, and this is something that it kind of still feels in that vein. Uh, I can picture Vincent Price or Christopher Lee mm-hmm. in it. And the, the 1963 The Haunting is one of my favorite horror films. And it's one of my mom's favorite horror films. She, that was one of the first horror films I ever saw where the walls were like breathing and bleeding. And, and that movie has amazing effects, if y'all ever get a chance to watch this one. So this has been kind of a genre that's been kind of close to me ever since because – you you get that killer house. You get that. See what I did there, killer house. But you, get, <laughs> but you get that killer house. You get that. You get that house that has that such that rich character that has that rich colors, and then you can use your color lighting to just really lean into it really hard, and you get some really beautiful imagery, and then they just and they just take advantage of it, and it's awesome. In the haunting as well, the newer one. The thing that I think kills a lot of it is the lighting. It's too damn bright. Even in this one, even during the day, it's dark as hell. You've got large room, but the lighting is used to it till it feels suffocating the entire time. And as it goes on, it's more and more so because they're realistically in this house. It's getting no light into it and crowded around these oil lamps. And you don't know what the hell's in the dark behind them, but you know it's not good. And just... Absolutely, this I do not know why more people do not know about this outside of the genre because it's an amazing. I love I love the effect the and that that's what got for me what got it for me was going into it uh, again after so many years, the way the house was backlit. You see glimpses of that in the trailer. It was when they're approaching the house when they're coming in. Everything from the creepy gate and they oh everything about it, setting the atmosphere. But the way the house is backlit. So I almost get you almost get the sensation. I thought this was a brilliant decision as far as this as far as the cinematography as far as the director of photography uh, decided to go was if the house is extremely backlit, everything about it is is extremely dark, and there's a lot of shadows and a lot of depth inside the home. We have a lot of like recesses where there could be things could be hiding, but in this one, the house in and of itself, the outside is extremely baroque and very very gothic, but you don't get a ton of that you get bits and pieces but when approaching the house the house is very backlit and very very dark almost like you're walking into a shadow which i thought conveyed the 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 kind of idea of the house the very concept that this place is this badly haunted and conveys it well as our as our protagonists are walking our our, you know intrepid paranormal investigators are walking into walking into the darkness they're walking into the shadow that is shaped like a house and the only real super detail you get is is on the inside where there, there is the real character of the house is what's going on inside the darkness, and that's all the the, the monsters and the, the spookiness that's, that's happening in there. I loved that that contrast, especially for a film coming out of the seventies. I thought it was a brilliant decision, and you know really lends you know the the, the film its credibility. 
And yes, you're right, Mr. Malort. Uh, Blind Manor was inspired was uh, inspired by Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which is an 1898 novella. Um, I, yeah, you are correct on that one. Mr. Malort says a haunted farmhouse during the day is creepy as fuck. Yes, it is. It can be. Uh, I like. Bird, sir, I'll go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, say so Jack Burton said the haunting 1999, which is the one we were talking about, was all visuals, little atmosphere, with story kind of sort of there. Right. It just it went for like the visual appeal, and the problem is. It rested too much in that. With a haunted house story, the house plays a character, but the people have to be of substance within it. You know, they, they, there's got to be depth there. And that's what's important because the house in and of itself is a character. And so the character needs to do things that a character would do, but remember, it's a house. And then the people around it need to be interacting with that character. And that's why everyone's got their own kind of story, their own kind of arc in, in regards to interacting with the house character. That's why it affects everybody differently and everybody winds up in different places because it's a member of the cast. So each person has to treat the house as a member of the cast. They treat it with the house with suspicion. They treat the house with, you know, with awe. They treat the house with disrespect or they, you know, they completely you know, rebuff the house. They don't, you know, it's like they don't accept it. These are all things that a, that a human character would react to. Well, the house reacts to it and that's what's important. So you get just the typical house but play with it like it's another person that's there. And that's what really sells the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like what I like what sarcasm says right here. Uh it's like the house sucks light out of the air yeah. on it. And yeah. so so dealing with the fact of, you know, sitting in this atmosphere, making a you're like what JL said, you're it's essentially its own cast member mm-hmm. that you're having you're having this dialogue, you're having this conversation with the house despite the fact that the house is not even saying anything but just the angles you use the house the lighting you use the house and you have like with the haunting from 1999 it feels like a sicko it felt it, it was lit like a family film right be, really honest like a disney film like i wasn't scared at any part in this where it was p it was pg-13 wasn't it i i want to say it was it just, like, it, it, that film never felt like the stakes were very high it, that it just, just it yeah. never did on it whereas with this one is like a you feel the conversation with the house you feel the darkness you feel the dread you feel the stakes on it and that's just a house in of itself that's incredible it it executes the personality of its its owner its creator emmerich belasco because the thing is it's not just trying to kill him and that they talk about the overacting on there and what they don't realize is that's the extreme end of the spectrum of the behavior of people inside because the house's goal isn't just to kill he liked to test people and watch them and see what it took to break them and how to break them and like jl said is playing that out differently with each character it identifies the person's weakness and it pursues it and it they don't just run in and bleeding walls and stuff flying immediately like you saw it builds up through these series series of events till you yourself are feeling the pressure that they are because you're like get the fuck out right <laughs> just won't do it i thought yeah absolutely wonderful i love uh, everything about it um and yes uh, someone brought brother last name brings up this goes to the, to the technique of not showing the killer if you barely see the house even while inside and that was th- that's an exceptionally important point. I like I like what Eugene brought up there. Is as a filmmaker, it's important to remember things like this. And it's films like this that you can learn a lot from, especially when they're dealing with practical effects and how to light a particular thing. These are 
I can't we cannot stress enough for those burgeoning filmmakers that are out there who are looking to shoot even minor stuff. Sound and light is so vitally important. And it's a movie like this that showcases just how important these things are. Capturing the clarity of your actors, capturing the clarity of what's going on in the house, and of course capturing the house in and of itself. Setting it up, you have to set it up as the most important character. So the most things have to be conveyed about it because the house can't talk. So lighting the thing correctly, having the right, you know, having the right conversations going on at specific moments. These are the things that are important that bring the house to life. And uh, this is seen again. Flanagan did this exceptionally well. Depending upon where you were in in the in the, the haunting of Hill House, the which was on Netflix, brilliant series if you haven't seen it. But he does the exact same thing. Only he moved it not only the house in and of itself, but from room to room. Each one was different, as though the house was creating an environment or an atmosphere depending upon who was in the room, at what particular time, and who was interacting there, and what the ghosts were doing. And of course, not to mention he's a brilliant. Uh, director and knows how to capture things visually because I had to go back and watch a time, watch it a second time to see all the times you missed a ghost when there was a ghost in the scene, and because of his because of the deft camera work, you did not see it the first time, or you may have glimpsed it out of the corner. You were like, whoa, whoa, what was that? What was it? Yeah. So yeah, brilliant stuff, and I love this one. Uh, Mr. Malord says J.M. Truth gravel crunching. Well, I. I <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sound is very important. You don't want... You, <laughs> he has a point there. He has a very good point. Always capture... Laugh mics, very, very important. Laugh mics were a really, really good boom. Yeah, so, but even even on top of... You talk about like the sound design. Yeah, obviously, you want to capture good sound on set, but just that sound design in post-production when you're building it, getting those creepy tones, those atmospheric tones, being able to balance the volumes of it, being able to... Because there are certain tones that you listen to they just make you naturally uneasy and mm -hmm. when the slide because if you just use it if you just sprinkle it if you put it throughout your entire film then you kind of get used to it and it kind of has the effect wears off but being able to craft that sound to really immerse your audience so it's like you have your lighting that's immersing your eyes in it and then you have the sound design that immerses your ears and both of that comes together mm -hmm. to create a scene Rodinella's name brings up, uh, and I saw that you responded to it, Aaron, says, Poltergeist uses the family tropes to give a sense of nostalgia and familiar sympathy to the family to contrast with the evil in the house. And that works. That's what works so well, because it's a family story, and it's an ego with the evil that's going on in the home trying to steal Carol Ann. Whereas Jackson's story, or this particular story, the way it's been adapted, essentially is, it's still the house that's trying to take them out, that's trying to undo them, but the, the I would say, the... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, God damn it. it I, I had it right there, tip of my tongue. The, not disparity, the dis, like, the, okay, the, the interactions between everybody causes a dis, there's a dissymmetry between the characters. There's a symmetry in a family. The father, the mother, the daughter, the, the little girl, the brother, oh, the, the, the daughters, the brother. That family symmetry, we could all attach ourselves to, which is what makes Poltergeist so strong, is because it's the, this family bond that we all that we all recognize, we love, that we that we identify with in the face of a great evil. In this one, the characters themselves are not unified. Everyone's got their own motives. Everyone's got their own ideas. No one is on the same page. And because of that, because no one is united when they're walking into that place, it use it can use that against them. So, and that turns around and makes us because we see the disparity going on between them. 
we see how disjointed they are and because of that we realize we see all the all the all the chinks in the armor that the house is going to use against them and we say oh this is going to play into this it's going to play into this and I, it's a beautiful way it's a beautiful form of uh, kind of like foreshadowing what's going to occur because you you see who's going to be attacked in particular ways and I thought it just it plays into it beautifully. Beautiful storytelling. Matheson's uh, screenplay, his adaptation of his own story was was magnificent. Um, and of course, a a wonderful legacy adapted from uh, the legacy of Shirley Jackson, um, who just you know people still keep going back to that time and time again. Beautiful stuff. All right. So my question is this. Richard Matheson's work has been adapted a great many times. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with I Am Legend, which was, you know, the Omega Man, and of course the Will Smith uh, film, I Am Legend, which I think is going to be getting another another adaptation here pretty soon. But his work has been adapted many times. Not all of them horror, but a lot of them really, uh, but a lot of them really, really awesome. What is your favorite Richard Matheson adaptation? Let us know in the comments below or in the live chat. Which one is your favorite of Richard Matheson's adaptations. All right, Eugene, you've got our next one, man. <laughs> this one is amazing. Oh, I can't uh, wait to talk about this one. A fun classic released June 19, have the oh. Driller Killer. I think he's roboting a little bit. Yeah. Oh, he went full cyborg. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, we got you. Okay. So, June 5th, 1979, 15th, 1979, we have the Driller Killer. Play Let's it. check out this trailer. Yes. <laughs> That's good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so, we have the Driller Killer directed by Abel Fiera and starring Abel Fiera, Carolyn Mars... Baby Day, Harry Schultz, and Alan Weinworth. And basically, in a nutshell, you have an artist who goes out at night and kills people with drills. And shit gets real. <laughs> shit most definitely gets real in this particular yeah. one. <laughs> I, I always thought it was, it was kind of interesting because Abel Ferrara plays the lead in this, but he credited himself as Jimmy Lane in the uh in uh the credits and i thought that was odd because he's you know there's a lot of directors who also you know directed by and starring he didn't want that i mean he went under a different name so he could portray it. i i i never really did hear what his meant what his mindset was behind that but it was a choice he made but of course um abel ferrara uh legendary director um what you say a legacy of controversy really yeah um like I'm always torn about Abel Ferrara because the stuff he does is so interesting. It is immersive, but it is unpleasant. Like, um, you've got... <laughs> it, we talked about his face. I'm not going to get into Abel Ferrara's face, but I don't enjoy it. <laughs> 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 but um, you've got, you know, we talked about Basket Case a while back. You've got Hen and Lauder and... His stuff is more a celebration kind of, I almost want to say the light in dark places to a degree where you've got these unpleasant circumstances mm. and unpleasant locations. But these people are generally good people. They're strange. They're people that you might have trouble 
getting along with. They're very odd. They're even kind of ugly in some cases. Whereas Ferrari, he really celebrates the fact that he gets pretty people. Except for him. <laughs> but he gets pretty people and he puts them in these terrible circumstances. You know, the they're in this. It's actually, it was legitimately his apartment, but. They're in tenements and dirty places. You've got punk bands practicing. Um, very, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Definitely not pop music. It's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. And he puts you fully into that and rags you right through it. So the entire time, it, it's unpleasant. Is the only way I can think to describe it. Uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it doesn't turn you away. It's what makes it overall interesting. And there's a lot of people that got a problem with that. It's, uh, I've heard, it's been said before. Um, I think it was, it was by, it was either by Hanelot or Corman that, um, that ex, the, the, the difference between exploitation and a horror film is all about, is all about attitude. And I like I like what you brought up there about Frank Henenlotter's work. Frank, you know Henenlotter, who's you know the Basket Case trilogy, Frank and Hooker, is that his a lot of his deep inspirations were from the, the kind of like his time in New York during the seventies, the seedy underbelly, the kind of things about New York that you don't really want to think about, the the backside of Broadway, essentially. And both Ferrara and Henenlotter kind of take from the same inspiration. But I like what you say about about Henenlotter is that Henenlotter will take typically people that you know are not attractive people that you wouldn't want to deal with, you know, the people of the underbelly, but it celebrates them instead of chastising them. And I would say that Ferrara's work has more of that attitude for that exploitation because it's, it, it, it doubles down on the, on the fact, this is the reason why, you know, the, the, the people of Skid Row, why there's, there's no beauty about them. And it's very, very, I would say mean spirited. Is what it is. This is that attitude that that I think that uh, exploitation directors are talking about. The thing that separates horror and exploitation films is that it has that meanness to it that you that is palpable, and that's what you get from this from uh, Ferrara's character from uh, Reno Miller, who is the the exasperated, uh, down on his luck artist that is just infuriated at the world. And if you given the time period that this came out, this is 19, what was this? Uh, 19, 1979. Uh, 1979. You given what's going on in the world at the time with the, uh, the end of, was it the end of Vietnam? Uh, sure this uh, is... Vietnam ended in 75, 75. So this is four yeah. years after the end of Vietnam. And he is old enough to have, uh, uh, I'm not saying he wasn't a Vietnam veteran, but that anti-war kind of mentality is still kind of permeating things. America's in a bit of an upheaval. The counterculture of the the counterculture revolution of the '60s is winding to an end, and we're giving way to the coke laden, you know, the coke fueled '80s, um, and the uh, and the, the the rise of the yuppie. And so, all of a sudden, corporate America's coming, is stamping out the counterculture, and it felt very much. It, I know he didn't, he wasn't trying to. I know that Ferrar wasn't trying to get into this, but the very notion that he like it's the this is like the last fringes of those who counted themselves amongst the counterculture of the 60s and the people who were out there at anti-war rallies. This is the end of them. This was the death knell of their kind and the only way they could react is in this horrifically violent way. And I thought that that's an extremely cynical way of looking at things. But I think there, therein lies that attitude that exploitation directors like John Waters, Roger Corman, that Frank Henlotter, that they go for. 
in order to convey the the stories that they're conveying on this. This one I just think with Driller Killer is just straight up. It's mean as fuck, and it's a very very basic premise. And it's oh, it's only intentions to like this is the like this is the dregs. Welcome to the horror of of reality. Well, you, you yeah. Look at, you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Eugene. Well, you look at also New New York at the time. You're talking about gang infested. You didn't oh, yeah. want to ride the subways. When you look at movies like The Warriors, that was how New York was in the late '70s and early '80s. It was dangerous. People could get murdered on the street, and no one would call for help for you or anything like that. So you had you kind of create this culture. You kind of create this the seedy underbelly of this was this was the dregs this was the darkness this was the under all the high-rise hotel all the high-rise buildings this is what was happening on and the this street is, level and this is two years essentially said like i mean 1979 this is two years after the son of sam murders so we, they'd already gone through the summer of sam when david berkowitz was you know running rampant through new york and the new york was having blackouts and terrible you know the, the heat was oppressive and it's just it was in you know it was the ugly, dirty place that people thought of. You know, it's loud, it's noisy, it's everything they described in Ghostbusters too. Sure, it's loud, it's dirty, it's noisy, and people would soon step on you rather than you know rather than help you. But that's kind of what it was, you know. And um, I, it conveys it so it, it's so gross, and you gotta wonder. You can understand because Rob Zombie. And I know we're bringing him up again. Rob Zombie lived in the, in New York during the seventies, and he a lot of inspiration for his band White Zombie. A lot of their artwork and a lot of their the, a lot of their stage portrayals came from that kind of underbelly of New York. He took a lot of that inspiration and brought it into White Zombie, and then you know the the whole Hellbilly Deluxe thing came. You know that that whole concept has its roots. In the kind of grimy, gritty seediness of New York of the '70s, and you can kind of see that played out, and especially in the more surrealistic parts, when he is definitely, when the you know he's out of his mind, <laughs> when Reno is just like, oh. well, they Hunter S. Thompson talks about it, and you're talking about it. You know, the end of the generation of love and everything is when it fell apart. It soured, and that's what has happened here, you know. And but the strange thing is that I think, yeah, it's exploitative, but I think Abel Ferrara has a love for this culture, he legitimately cares about it because, like I said, he shot it in his apartment. Um, he's poured a lot of inspiration into this, but it leads to the question because that lifestyle burns you out, you don't yeah. live long, you're headed into the heroin era, too. Here, not just cocaine but and you can see that's exactly where some of these people are going to end up so the question to me is do you want to be loved by somebody like abel ferrara because it is a toxic love it is being attached to a lifestyle that is eventually going to destroy you mm -hmm. um because the drugs are going to burn you out you're going to end up they show the homeless people here and to me that is where he if he had not started going completely murderous that was actually exactly where he was going to end up because he was incapable of functioning in a normal society. And he followed it up, but he followed this up with, uh, with, so some of the, some of the best or some really, really good New York style films. You could tell he loves the city. 
He loves New York for what it has. He takes it as a full package, as evidenced by movies like Miss 45 and King of New York and Bad Lieutenant. Um, he's done some amazing... Some ama I love Bad Lieutenant. I thought Harvey Keitel was amazing in that. Christopher Walken was great in King of New York. Um, you can tell that there's a love for the city, but he also recognizes the different aspects of the city and he embraces them fully. And no, you're, you're good. You're good, Aaron. You're not, you're not. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that was, I, this one got me, um, particularly now, as far as like the special effects go, obviously you're looking at this one. It, you could be like, uh, I personally, you know, I hate it when the blood is too red. That's just me. It just, it gets me. I was like, uh, kind of, but you know, it, it served its purpose at the time. There was a big thing about this one. And as, as well as the movie serves its purpose and what Abel Ferreira was intending, there is something about it, and I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this, that I don't think Ferrara was intending. And that's what makes this film so important. And it's weird. I know it's weird to hear me think, to hear me say, to, to hear us say, like, yo, Driller Killer, a very important film. And I think it was. Because going back in the timeline, what was going on at the time in the 70s uh, going into the 80s was the rise of the video nasty panic. Now we've talked about the video nasty panic that occurred in uh, in Europe, uh, pretty much in the in uh, the UK, where films were being censored, um, which led to changes in distribution, VHS distribution, and there was a big huge crackdown on particular films that the the censors felt. Hell, we we did a, we talked about a movie last week. Censor was was yeah. oh, essentially was covering this. The thing about Driller Killer is by film historians it is widely credited as the film that kicked off the video nasty panic because when this movie came out and i'm trying to imagine this fucking 1979 full page ad in your because this movie came out in america nobody batted an eye nobody blinked we got fucking texas chainsaw massacre we got fucking uh halloween Nobody's batting an eye at this motherfucker. We got, you know, Last House on the Left. He's like, whatever. But this movie comes out, and Ferrara takes out a full-page ad, and it features a still when the guys, guys getting drilled in the head. Like this, just full-on, blown-up full-page ad with the tagline, some people, uh, was it, some people kill violently. And it was like, driller killer. That ad sent the press into a frenzy. As to, like, what are we showing, Ark? What are people watching? This is insane. Which then led to the creation of the, uh, the, uh, I can't remember, the, the film, basically the Film Obscenity Act. Which then led to the video Nasty Panic and films being cold, films being grabbed, like, what, you know, what to add to this? This is too extreme. And movies being added to the video Nasty uh, Panic, which essentially had the Streisand effect and made them more desirable. Because it created a black market for films that, you know, they didn't want you to see. So obviously trying to cancel them didn't work out. But this is the film that's regarded as the one that kicked off the whole thing. And the reason I found it interesting is because the video Nasty Panic resulted in a change in the distribution model for films across the board. Because then VHS came to rise. There was beta, then VHS exploded. So, so the video Nasty Panic helped. Then VHS, VHS gave rise to DVD, DVD gave rise to Blu-ray, and our entire distribution model changed on a dime because one movie came out and they tried to shut down an, a subgenre of these extreme exploitative horror flicks. Their attempts to shut it down in Europe ostensibly changed the distribution market in Europe, which then proved fortuitous for us because we said, oh, that works, and then, we get, and then America ran with it as well. 
And that's why I think this film is now. I could be wrong. Like I said, it's my opinion, but I think I think there's something to that. Your thought. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, this is this is why you start getting into the home video market because you have to keep in mind this is brand new. Before VHS and Betamax and all that other kind of stuff, a movie would come out in the theater, and if you didn't catch it in the theater, you never saw it. That, I mean, that was just it. That was gone. That's why when you look at Gone with the Wind, adjusted for inflation, Gone with the Wind is the number one film of all time. Uh, I think in today's dollars, it made over $4 billion when, because it came out in 1939, ran for about six months because if you did not see it at the time, then you just never saw it. Like that was it. There was just no other option. And that's probably a record that would never be broken, or at least in, in our lifetimes. And so that was it. So there, you got to think the people in charge are used to that mindset. Oh, well, we just won't release band release in theaters. No one will ever see it. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, no, now we start getting VHS. We start getting these tapes. We start getting these things that can get handed out. You're not having a huge theater with a huge sign and ads for showtimes and stuff to get people to go see it. You can have a little store that can sell a VHS in the back in a back bin somewhere for a couple bucks here check, check this out and somebody else can go and copy it and it starts going through and you start getting the home video market and of course studios go huh you know what we can make money again off yes. of this uh and we start re-releasing stuff and re-going back to the vault and getting old stuff out there so you when vhs started coming out you literally had films coming back like the wizard of oz and people are like i haven't seen this in 40 years i want to get it i want to be able to re i want to be able to re-watch it again because even tv at the time didn't really play movies very often they just right. they tv had their own programming they just didn't so you have this huge onset and honestly it was just a timing because if this movie came out maybe 10 years prior, it may have just disappeared and fell off completely. If it came out 10 yeah. years later, uh, you already have, think of all the horror movies that came out between now and you know, 1989, it probably wouldn't have had that impact. But one of the most important things is that timing. If you get that right timing at the right technological state and the right state of the culture, you can make something that really, really impacts the culture. And we had done this dance to a degree. You're talking about how it hit in the States versus how it hit in the UK. We had done this dance to a degree with the Hayes Code right. back in the 40s, right. 50s. Um, so we had kind of walked through it. And like you said earlier, you know, the Son of Sam had hit. These movies aren't as terrifying as what's actually happening out there. Even the covers, the ads, and everything like that. And my big stance on it is looking at the Hayes era. True, we had some horror masterpieces come out. But the genre is very limited. It's, I think it is better to run the risk of pissing people off because they always do something like the Hayes Code, comics code that limited the EC comic. Um, and they feed their own fire by suddenly drawing this interest that nobody had in the first place. And then you transition to VHS where before you not don't really have a huge issue maybe with older teens but with younger people sneaking out and going to a grindhouse where you would normally see a movie like this or a movie of lower quality that's the bloody mess the stuff that we love you'd have to sneak out well now they can bring it home they can trade it um 
I think at a surface level, it does damage to the genre. But overall, I think you have got to push those because it's just like I've discussed Larry Flint before. I, as an individual, I'm not a fan of, fan of Larry Flint. And you can say, you know, you can do different valuations of the stuff he put out as far as adult materials. But you've got to have somebody out there pushing the freedom of expression because if you don't, those walls close in more and more and more. Right. So I think even if, which I think there's some substance to this, but even without the substance, I think you've got to have people out there pushing at the edges with this stuff in order to keep the publication and the release open enough that even if there's a flow of crap, there are going to be some golden ones that come out of it that live for decades and maybe even we're going to see more than a century on this. So I do think that it it got lucky slash unlucky because it was mainly the poster and not the movie that caused the uproar. But I think even a quote-unquote crap film like this has an important part to play. Absolutely. It, it, that's what got me. It was like the idea that in their minds, in the, in the censors' minds, there was a, a point where it, when gratuitous became too much. And then they they were the they were the acts that chopped it right there. It says nope, you can't have this. They, you know, we understand you know, having gratuitous violence, gratuitous sex, or whatever. And then they would drop the hammer at, at a specific point. But that's what I think Ferrara was really really pushing for. Which individuals like Hennenlauter and Ferrara and Corman and John Waters, um, the way they pushed the envelope, and that we always have to be doing so because there is never, in my opinion, there is it, you cannot be gratuitous enough. Which is why we can still have movies today, movies like The House that Jack Built, movies like August Underground, movies like The Human Centipede. Now, I know that these films don't sit right with people, with some individuals. They, they, they hear and they go, and they want to gag. I get that. But it's important to have these things. Not only because it's an it is art and it is an expression and it should not be censored at all, which is, you know, this just first and foremost, is that art should never be censored because of what different people can take from it. But because you never know what you're going to change with it. And how their attempts to change this had this... He put out this movie just expecting he was going to put out this, you know, thing of this, this, you know, CD movie about a guy killing people with a drill. Whatever his personal motivations behind it, whatever story he was trying to tell, whatever parallels to his own life, those may be lost to history or you know, he, may, he may never, you know, come forward with those. But we can see the parallels with reality. And we see how one simple little movie, one cheap little exploitative movie, fundamentally altered the scope of film history uh, from that point on. Because now we look at the model we have today. Everything is streaming. Everything is being released simultaneously to home, to, uh, to home release as well as in theaters. And the reason home release became so important was because there's this market that, you know, there, there were these people out there that decided, no, you can't have it. And we decided, yes, we can. So, and you never know what could happen. You never know what effect your project could have on the, on the industry, on the genre, or on the entire scope of film history in and of itself. So never shut down an idea. Always put it out there. Always push the envelope. Go two steps farther than the house that Jack built. You know? Go big. Go bigger. Go go Mandy big. You know? Or go the fuck home. Because, like I said, you probably won't have an effect. But you never know you might. And you never know who you might inspire or what changes you may, you may bring about. Which is why I loved 
I look back at this with this this kind of in mind, going back and watching this, and I said, man, if Ferrara knew the effect that he would have, given what he was trying to say, if he knew what he had had, and that's a question that boggled that kind of got me is, if Ferrara knew what effect Driller Killer was going to have on the industry, would he have made the movie? And I honestly don't think he would have. I don't think he would have made this because that wasn't his mentality. He was very much an against the grain kind of. He's very much an against the against the grain kind of guy. But if he'd known what what this would do, what it, how it would shape things out, I don't think he. I don't think he would. That's just you know my conclusion there. And yes, you're right, wrote Ellis name. Just don't go full JM Truth. Never go full JM Truth. You're absolutely correct. You're, I was going to say, just never go full snuff, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you have, and I love the saying, art isn't always beautiful. It's, it's not. There's no requirement that it has to be. Art is just, is, art is art. It is what it is. And in terms of infecting, in terms of affecting the whole movie, just movies as a whole a lot of times you don't know you'll have some super big giant movies that affect the direction of cinema and then you have a little two-bit eleven thousand dollar film filmed at somebody's house that has a giant impact in cinema also so you never you never ever know all you can really do is put your stuff out there and maybe you get to a point oh you're just a regular filmmaker and you can make a living and keep going that way, or maybe the chips fall and you roll the dice and you get the nat 20 and all of a sudden you revolutionize a genre or you create a genre. Or Blair Witch Project. <laughs> yeah, like Blair Witch Project. 60 grand, six, 60 grand and all of a sudden everything is found footage. Thank you, Blair Witch Project. Although I, I, though I still love that movie, I really, really do. Yeah, I, I, still, I still love it also. And so you get you get that you know that Blair when you get that Nat twenty you get that Blair Witch Project or you get Driller Killer or you get something like you get something like that. Mm. Um, so or you wind up doing like out. Pink Flamingos and everybody's just like ah oh, 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 oh Pink Flamingos rough. <laughs> <laughs> hey Joshua Lee is in the house. Good to see you, Joshua Lee. Thanks so much for being here, bud. We do appreciate it. Nah, you're not late. You're never late. You always arrive precisely when you mean to. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I actually, I want to ask the audience, and I know we've been talking a lot about the, the effect this has had in horror, but going back to Driller Killer itself, do you think Carol died? Because it leaves it kind of ambiguous, as in what kind of happened to her? So I do. I want to ask the audience, leave a comment below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Did Carol die at the end of this film? I vote yes. I vote Carol Carol smoked. That Carol is dead. <laughs> I think, yeah, and I think he probably tried to trepan himself after that and we found the <laughs> next to her. He tried, he tried to do it. He, tried to, he, did, he pulled a pie at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Cabin says, yep, she did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> On that. Oh, oh, Rodanella Sam says she lives, then buys a nail gun. Ooh. <laughs> Charlie Welch says she gone. <laughs> no love for Carol. Carol. Carol croaked. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, Aaron. Okay, there's been some demand. I see some demand in there. It's like they want us to get to the rats. So, Aaron, uh, take us home for our last one. <laughs> All right. Some people are going to be uncomfortable with this. I can do nothing to help you. Up next, from June 17th, 1971, we've got Willard. The original. The original. All right. So it's directed by Daniel Mann, screenplay by Gilbert Ralston, based on the novel by Stephen Gilbert, starring Bruce Davison, Sandra Locke, Ernest Borgnine, Michael Dante, and the legendary Elsa Lanchester. Um, if you don't know what this is about, I would like a tour of the rock you've been living under. Uh, <laughs> basically, a guy learns to train a shit ton of rats and uses them to take some vengeance on people in his life. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I, I think it got bigger because of the newer movie. Suddenly, the popularity of the old one exploded, but it was still it made its own impact at the time. I like. I dug this one. Um, I I really really enjoyed going back and watching this one again. Bruce Davidson was fantastic. Uh, I loved him in the role, the nebbish little Willard who's just struggling to kind of like you know deal with you know, and how many. I couldn't count how many times that his name is screamed at him. And even by the end of that, I would be, I would snap if, you know, just like that, that how everyone in his life, except for, uh, of course, except for the, of course, the, the love interest, but everybody screaming his name, the way that his name is said with such derision by almost every single character, either because he, either that he's pathetic, that he's weak, or that he's incompetent from Ernest Borgnine to his mother's friend, to all of his mother's friends, to, uh, you know, his mother, to his mother herself. I love this one. There's and this was an unexpected hit of 1971 that this thing actually kind of blew up, and I think had a pretty phenomenal return as far as it goes. Um, 12th highest growing grossing film of the year, and I think it was because how simple it was, the simplicity in this. There was nothing really extreme. I mean, this is there's nothing really big as far as camera work goes. They just let the story tell the story because so many people are creeped out by rats. And then the idea of hordes of the of, of of the rodents would creep people out enough. They just let it speak for themselves. But it also goes to show, you know, rats are really easily trained. And that rat Ben was bad fucking ass. <laughs> I love the shots, especially that shot when he's like squinting at him. He's like, you motherfucker. It was like, oh, damn, rat be looking pissed. But yeah, I loved I, how he's got acting jobs. <laughs> I, loved, I loved the simplicity of the movie. I loved the characterization and... The scene that makes it for me, the the big the epic confrontation between Willard and Ernest Borgnine's character, um, his character, the uh, the boss, uh, goddamn, what was the fuck was his name? Um, Al Martin with with uh, Mr. Martin. I love that because the whole movie is shot very the, the lighting wise is shot very very evenly, and so you get like you know the you get a particular lighting in this cellar in the basement of the house where all the rats are staying and the lighting in the house lighting up in the bedrooms. And, of course, the lighting of the office, it's all very fluorescent. It all is very just kind of just even. There's no real changes until this one moment in the entire movie when Willard confronts his boss. And Ernest Borgnine, who's been a giant fucking asshole the entire goddamn movie. A womanizer, a, a lush, he's just a complete and total dick. Um, and then all of a sudden he's shitting his pants. And the scene once all the rats are all over the place. And the way... Uh, Bruce was underlit, and he was kind of overlit, 
as though the power had suddenly come in and he was forced to sit down and just kind of like, uh, you know, be in that moment. I love the simplicity of the movie and I think is the reason why the movie is successful. They let the rats tell the story. They let people's own fear tell the story itself, which I think works really, really well. Well, uh, on top of that, you get a story that people can relate to because everybody's had a boss they've hated. Everybody's <laughs> had to take shit from somebody. It's just, it's the way it is. Um, it's like, we all have that. And they have the idea of getting that revenge on that on that boss, where all of a sudden it's like, okay, you can go make the boss sit down. You can stand over him, and you can parade into him just before you feed him to your pets, basically, uh, at this point. Like, it's such, it's so relatable. And the thing is, is the payoff feels so good. And right. that's how that's how you get so many people into it. The payoff just feels so good. So people will go back and watch it several times. You'd be like, I had a you know what? I had a sucky day at work. I'm gonna go watch someone <laughs> else's boss get eaten by rats. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's got a really unconventional combination. Like like you said, with the lighting and stuff, it's not its not like really darkly lit. It's not really hyper-menacing and everything. The music, you could hear some of it in the trailer, but there's more in there. The way the instrumental music is done, the score, it's almost like we were talking about earlier, Disney-ish. It feels like the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse era where it's just these really light brass and woodwind instruments and everything. And it's not super heavy, like... You might almost expect him to turn these rats into a circus, except he is slowly but surely losing his mind. <laughs> and yeah, and it does turn on a dime and it plays on the fear of rats. The only criticism I would have is the fact that if rats are gonna take somebody, they're gonna crawl from the bottom up. But suddenly Ernest Borgnine has been attacked by the first hopping rats ever seen because they're coming down from the ceilings and the walls and screaming. When they when they yeah. when they're when they're flying at him, when they fly at him, I thought that yeah. was pretty just, ah! just like and I knew, You know that's an earnest contract because he's like, I'm not laying down in a bed of rats. I'm just not doing it. I'm too important. <laughs> but uh yeah, it it is slow build menace completely in daylight. And I think that's why it played so well is because it doesn't have a dark veneer on it like a lot of horror movies. And if it hadn't taken the turn it did at the end, it wouldn't... I don't know if it would even fit in the horror category. It would be more kind of a psychological drama. But because it did that, we got it here, and it got as popular as it did. It kind of squeaked its way through. I see what you did there. <laughs> and i agree with that so sarcasm brings up an interesting point so i wonder if makeup accentuated bruce's mouse-like characteristics or was that just a casting choice and given how it was lit i'm actually thinking that may have been a casting choice that that just you know the the he didn't have the straightest of teeth and the fact that his nose is a bit on the pointy side, and he does have some mouse-like characteristics, I would agree that it was probably, I, I would say it's probably a casting choice, and which which lends itself to it as well. Um, I also like the 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 tale the tale of the regret of the of the regressed man and seeking to find his power, seeking to find his identity, and what plays into the psychological drama of it as well. But it quickly descends into madness, which is where the horror lies. And of course, you know. 
and the way he reject the way he kind of like you know what you come and see is when you see like a murder committed in a movie then the character like the character kills someone then throws up in reaction to what they've done whereas he his reaction is Borgnine's character uh, Mr. Martin dies after the scene when the rats flood the office and then he attacks him the rats take him out he goes out the window and automatically uh Willard's reaction is he goes and tries to get rid of them all and tries to drown them all which was I have to say for the for the scene in the 70s that looked a little that looked really real to me that was I know it was fake but it was really really well done and the way he's trying to kill the rats to get rid of him then of course Ben shows up and is like you motherfucker um and then the the whole ending sequence when the rats descend on him and they wind up taking him out the same way um and of course led to the sequel Ben being a bit more of a horror film because the sequel was definitely you know uh, laid down in that bed a little bit further, especially the films took inspiration. There was a film called um, Tarantula, uh, and uh, which dealt with spiders, and another one that dealt with a rattlesnake. I can't remember what the name of it was. But it was a guy who had a, ra- a guy, this dude who had a snake called Richard that he set on people, set on people that pissed him off. So it kind of like it had its inspirations there, where it went further into the horror genre, which may have been why it wasn't so long lasting. We didn't see a lot after this. Maybe we needed. The psychological aspect, the more of the psychological drama descending into horror that we needed. We needed that instead of just trying to do all-out horror, we needed to have some sort of sympathy for Willard so that we could connect with the idea that, yeah, I would love to feed my boss to rats. That would be fantastic because my boss is a dick, which Ernest Borgnine nailed to a T. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's strange, too, the, the one thing that kind of almost like cleanses his actions sort of is the fact that he is using a third party agent to execute this. So yeah, he is engaging action to kill, but he's sticking the rats on this guy and they build you up with him. Well, it's just a party that he's invaded a little here, a little there. And in the end he uses them to kill. Well, he didn't kill him. Technically the rats did. So it almost makes his actions cleaner because he didn't take a knife to the guy. Um, so I think that made it a little more palatable to uh, take the agency and, off of him. And also you have like the uh, the loss of control at the end. So it's like he uses a third party to go and kill and kill Ernest Borgnine. But then as it's like a, that's where the descent kind of goes in because now it's like a wrecking realizing what he's done and what he's become and so when he tries to go and starts to start killing the rats off the rats turning on him like no 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 we're the ones in control here yes you you took care of us that's why we were able to do stuff for you you're not taking care of us anymore so you're no longer needed and the kind of like the kind of like uh the commentary there that man's uh disequilibrium with nature and that when man has equilibrium with nature that things go very very well for man is that as long as we keep a balance then nature will work for us but the minute we turn against nature nature is a, is a violent force that will quickly show us how out of control we really really are and so that's just kind of an underlying theme across the whole across the whole bit now the the killer thing that i got for me going back and watching this one is that this harkened back to i didn't i didn't the, okay, the effect the effect of this, the effect of Willard had an effect on uh, essentially the animals in horror effect that other films the other films had as well. Jaws had an effect on people going to the beach because people were afraid of sharks. 
King of the Sp or, or a Kingdom of the Spiders had the same effect where people were freaked out by tarantulas and uh, rattlers as well, snakes, and then of course grizzly, grizzly bears, and the demonizing of animals in film. The demonizing of animals in film in order to make animals that people find or people find repellent to turn them into villains or to make them something to be feared is not something I terribly agree with. We talked about it, actually we talked about a previous one. Deadly Eyes was another uh, was a Canadian uh, audio mutant rat movie that we talked about. The thing that got me about this was that was how the rats were utilized in the film was was rough. And you all because you they're, they're rats they're small they're they're fragile you know and you always worry about them being hurt that's just me maybe it's the animal lover in me but there's a I think there's a reason why we don't get a lot of these films nowadays is because we're recognizing that demonizing animals for the sake of entertainment in that respect doesn't really play that well because like you know what Jaws did for sharks, what Grizzly, you know, did, what Grizzly and Prophecy did for bears, Rattlers, you know, rally, anything, what the birds did for the birds. People began to look at, you know, birds slightly differently. The effect of Cujo was, like, in the two years after Cujo, there was a precipitous plummet in the adoption of large dogs. If the dog was going to get too big, then people didn't want it because the dog could go rabid and the dog could attack you and you, you wouldn't know what to do. Well, that it's so extremely rare, but people don't think that way. And there is a commercial effect on because of films like this and i think that willard had that same effect and it demonized rats in the public's eyes because the film was so successful that more people saw it and led to the kind of you know like like led to the effect that it has on on rats and of themselves because they're actually brilliant creatures you know really really clean really really smart and very very helpful and necessary and yet movies like this do this uh angel rivera brings up dogs 1977 Absolutely, sarcasm. <laughs> Birds aren't real. <laughs> yes, I'm familiar, I'm familiar with that. With uh, with those. With that uh, conspiracy theory. But that's why. And I wanted kind of wanted uh, get what you thought. I, I'm sorry, Dave Cernick, and good to see you. Dave Cernick brings up Night of the Lepus. I don't think you could make rabbits that bad. Like you just can't. <laughs> Even when the rabbits are like big, giant, scary, and they're going nah, 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 nah. Rabbits look. They just look uh, comically hilarious. When you're trying to make them villainous. The only thing that made rabbits scary was Watership Down. And that had to be animated. You can't do live rabbits and make them scary. Uh, I beg to differ. Unless, of uh, course, it's a, it's a white rabbit eating a strawberry. <laughs> that's scary. You know? Uh, Mighty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, that's a scary Mighty Python rabbit. and the Holy Grail. <laughs> oh, Travis oh, Brown brings up by... Puppets. <laughs> Uh, Travis Brown brings up Bats from 1999. Oh, low. Yes, uh, the, what was it? Lou Diamond Phillips? <laughs> Lou yeah, Diamond Phillips movie, Bats. <laughs> and Food of the Gods, absolutely. Um, thank you, Jason Hyatt. Food of the Gods. The, that, I, that, I think this is the reason why, is the commercial effect is why we don't see movies like this come around. I think the last big animal movie I saw, which dealt with, like, you know, it was Snakes on a Plane. And that was more comedy. than It wasn't even a horror movie. That was a comedy action film with Sam Jackson. How many times can we have him say motherfucker in, in a movie? So we don't see horror movies come along this way. Unless it's like some fictional extinct animal like The Meg. Which would which, which turn out to be an action movie with Jason Statham. So we don't see this very, well, very often. On top of that, because first of all, it really depends on the animal itself. So it's... 
you already have a lot of the animals that are basically already taken. So, like you said, for for examples, like you can't make rabbits scary except for that one that one uh, thing right there. It's it's going to be hard to make another shark movie. I mean, it's just I mean, Jaws has just clamped down that genre that the yeah. shark movie so well. It's just going to be hard to make another shark movie or you know someone brought Arnado up like, didn't leave you terrified <laughs> <laughs> that's real that's realism right there but there's there's only so many animals on this planet that we are legitimately like scared of so if you if you go to a lesser animal like for example like an anteater or something most people aren't scared of that and so maybe if you turn it more if you did a comedy approach like eight-legged freaks that could that could work mm-hmm. But in terms of trying to make a truly scary movie, a lot of the animals are already taken. Or And if you try to reuse an animal, you're going to get compared to the original movie. If you make another mm-hmm. rap movie, you're going to compare it to Willard uh, right off the bat. So it's almost like a genre that kind of bottlenecks itself. Because, you, I mean, what you're going to – what's next? Like, I'm trying to think of, like, uh, yeah, like I said, like rabbits or – you already have you already have stuff of bears. You already have stuff of tigers. You already have stuff with. You're kind of Lion, out of yeah, yeah, lions Man, as well, and, and, <laughs> al- and alligators and crocodiles and pretty much anything out there that can kill a human being. Um, Sir Casa yeah. brings up Dawn of the Platypus, not uh, not a movie, but <laughs> you know should be a movie. <laughs> Plat- plat- platypi are terrifying. They're poisonous. Did you know that they're poisonous? <laughs> Angel what Rivera. Are, what animal are they? What they need to pick one. <laughs> Angel Rivera brings up sloths, the horror movie. <laughs> yeah, hey, hold, let me watch my favorite movie as I run away from the sloth. Oh, even worms. I, yes, Jason Hyatt brings up worms, squirm, squirm, squirm and frogs, and and what the, the, that one snake movie. I shit you not. That's the title of the movie. S was the title. It was like six S's. So, <laughs> I I think we've uh, become a lot more conscientious of animals and animal rights as part of it because when you watch it, the parts near the water where they're dealing with water, those kind of made me edgy. But when they were poking Socrates with the stick, and yeah, that yeah got I, me. it was die. Yeah, I know it's not blood, but the very fact they're poking him, they're scaring him, they're risking injury. That would not fly nowadays in most movies of this budget. You know, lower-end movies might get away with it. Anything at this level of release wouldn't get away with it. And we've... During that era, if a person had a rat as a pet, they might be considered a little bit of a weirdo. I don't think they're going to be considered a complete freak and social, or somebody be socially isolated, but they're a little bit of an oddball. Now it's a lot more common for people to have rats as pets. Um, and that's kind of, we've advanced along that line with most animals. And the, the things that really make these scary are the swarm effect, where there's a lot of them. And in daily life, when you have a problem with rats, it tends to be that. It's not one rat. It's where there's a lot of them, and they fall in, like you said, out of equilibrium with the environment there. And so they're in a house, and there's too many. So what might be clean and fine to them is toxic and dirty to us. Um, but overall, animals have become just generally less scary because we've gotten closer with them. You see it all the time now. When you take an animal, just like people, and you take away their need to fight and kill for food, they become decent like we do. I mean, put us in a bad situation, and we become evil sons of bitches too. Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, I think there is a lot more empathy for the subject, so it's just not, it's not on the table. 
Oh, you... Sir, Sir Chasm brings up, oh, it was seven S's in that oh. title. My bad. Uh, it's like oh. seven S's. Sir Chasm says, seven S's. I counted. That movie ruined my childhood. I am still traumatized by snakes to this day because of that film. You know, you bring that up. But two movies that did it for me as a kid, Kingdom of the Spiders and, and Squirm. Squirm made, Squirm put worms in a new light for me. And then when I found out that there are squirt that there are worms that live in that live here in America, on the coastlines, that that can bite you, I, that these things exist, that they 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 can. You, and when you're when you're hunting for them, I, I I watched a dog. I watched a show about like shit jobs that people would never have, and one of them was worm farmer. Was a main worm farmer. They dig these things up, blood worms. That you can't put these worms in the same bucket as other worms because they'll they'll kill all the other worms. So when they found out there were worms that could bite you, that just made it even worse. But the movie Squirm and Kingdom of the Spiders of William Shatner. Not because of William Shatner, but because, you know, big giant tarantulas that kill people. That whole sequence. Yeah, exactly. The sequence when, he, when William Shatner's like, ah, spiders all over me. Yeah, that's that that didn't do that didn't do me any favors at all growing up. <laughs> Yeah, we'll but would you be more terrified to look under your table and find a spider or to find William Shatner? <laughs> <laughs> it depends what William Shatner was doing down there. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> How many clothes does he have on? Mr. Tambourine Man! <laughs> I'm a rocket oh, man. Joshua Lee does bring up uh, arachnophobia. Was a big one? Yep. Arachnophobia and... Um, and no doubt there there have been and yes sarcasm I no doubt there have been lamprey and leeches there's a there's a leeches horror film and lamprey as well. Yeah. Um, Wolfen was also really, really was really really good. Uh, but arachnophobia got me as well. Arachnophobia because I'm not a giant spider fan. I can easily recognize I was trained as a Boy Scout and I I was a Boy Scout uh, to, all the way to my Eagle Scout, and I was trained how to recognize spiders on sight. So wolf spiders, black widows, yeah, you know, wolf, wolf spiders you recognize bullia, but uh, black widows, brown recluses, any kind, you know, I can I can usually say, yep, I know exactly what kind that is. So because I don't like spiders, and if they encroach on my space, they're KOS. I'm sorry. Typically, I try to get them outside where they belong because they're, they're helpful. But if they get like a, it's just like I had a jumping spider that lived in my office that was up there, but he kept his ass up there by the ceiling. It's like, great, you stay your ass up there. And I never saw him come down here. But I found a wolf spider one time that decided it was going to be on my desk one day. Sorry, bud. That they, you're, you're SOL. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep your distance and we're good to go. The only thing other, the only thing else that is KOS, no matter where it is, is cockroaches. Well, lampreys are scary just because they look like an anus with fangs. I don't like them. <laughs> I'm not scared of them, but I don't want to be around them. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm scared of them, just very mindful of their movements. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Aaron, All yeah, right. What's that? What, what, go ahead with CTA. Yeah, let's drop the question. All right, what we want to know is what is your favorite animal horror? You can go ahead and send us an email at weekendhorror@gmail.com. Drop it in the comments or leave it in the uh, live chat. 
All right. Well, I think it's about that time. It's time for trivia, right? Oh, yes, it is. We need to have a big bang for trivia time that, that, that announces trivia do, time. Do, 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 do. We need Alex. You're going to get us sued. Oh, <laughs> Alex does it so well. I don't... All right. So... Uh, it is trivia time, and I've got the question tonight. The winner of this tonight's trivia uh, question gets a Week in Horror Limited Edition shirt number five, the one featuring Aaron Reese as uh, the most uh, uh, wonderful and abused intern you could possibly imagine. So for a limited edition shirt number five, before that leaves the store forever, here we go. So, yeah, do the way to, well, there were three Wayne's World endings. The Scooby-Doo ending, the Mega Happy ending. Yeah, you didn't really think she'd wind up with Wayne, did you? <laughs> <laughs> all right so flex those google fingers here we go trivia question tonight what 2002 psychological horror film featuring an epic cast also featured a serial killer who attacked victims with a power drill you see how i link this to driller killer what 2002 psychological horror film featuring an epic cast also featured a serial killer who attacked victims with a power drill. First one in the live chat gets it. Oh, I don't have it pulled up. I don't have it. Uh, I probably should it. pull it up. You I, I it have up? it up also. Fantastic. Look at them. They're already ahead of me. And oh, we got like? it. Damn. Already. Jord Damn, and that was Jord quick. Ben. And the Jord. Nice. That's right. The correct answer is detox, or also known as ICU. I have to admit. Oh, we got to. Oh wow, Joshua Lee said Ted Bundy. Nope. Dive Gentry said Dahmer. What is with the serial killers tonight? <laughs> well, Dahmer did do some creepy stuff with one. This I'm surprised we got through the episode without somebody mentioning a drill, though. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcasm actually. Sarcasm is actually wearing the 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 uh, number five shirt right now. Fantastic. Yes. I was, I was, I'm, all, I'm always happy to hear what you're wearing. Uh, but yes, congratulations. And the George said the movie was Detox, a.k.a. ICU. It was actually ICU first, and then it was uh, released, and then the title changed to Detox. But I actually, I told, um, Charlie Wells said Frailty. Close. Uh, Frailty was a good movie. Bill Paxton, but that was with the double uh, the double-headed axe. Um, I actually told uh, Eugene about this movie, because you had never heard, because he had never heard about it. But this, if you can imagine, this movie Detox, um, 2002 film starring Sylvester Stallone, the unbelievable cast in this movie. Um, where did it go? Here we go. If you, so, 2002, Sylvester Stallone, Charles S. Dutton, Chris Christopherson, Jeffrey Wright, Tom Berenger, Stephen Lang, Robert Patrick, Courtney B. Vance, Sean Patrick Flannery, Dina Meyer, Rance Howard... I was, uh, I mean, epic cast across the, uh, yeah, yes, Tom Berenger, yeah. you got it, but epic cast in this one, and it's a psychological horror film about a serial, about a, you know, uh, Steven, uh, Steven, or sorry, uh, Sylvester Stallone, I almost said Steven Seagal, oh, that would be terrible, but uh, Sylvester Stallone plays a, um, Sylvester Stallone plays an FBI agent whose wife is killed by a by the serial killer he's chasing, and then he winds up you know spiraling out and winds up in this kind of rehab facility for law enforcement officers, specially designed for them. And then the killer ends up uh, you know attacking him at the rehab facility. And 
I thought it was an impressive film because it showed that it really showed that Sylvester Stallone does have the it does have acting chops. You don't have to watch a movie like Copland to see what Sylvester Stallone can bring to the screen when he wants to. And I was impressed by this movie, and I highly recommend it. if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a good little horror film, good little serial killer whodunit. Everybody is great in it. Chris Christopherson, Charles S. Dutton, you know, amazing actors across the board. And of course, you know, Jeffrey Wright and, uh, and fucking, um, Chris Christopher, or what was it? And, uh, fucking, oh, there's so many names. Damn it. And Robert Patrick, everybody was great in it. So highly recommended. <laughs> Travis Brown, B-Tox, old actors with face surgery. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, congratulations. And the George said, we are going to get you your limited edition shirt number five shipped out to you ASAP. Way to go. All right, then. And that will bring another episode of Weekend Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the creepy and twisty You Should Have Left, the 80s slasher The Scare Maker, the Splatter remake The Wizard of Gore, and the 50s classic Robot Monster. We'd like to send a special shout-out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so much. Be sure to stop by Joshua Olson's store, www.badsamurai.store. He does all of our amazing artwork for the show, and his designs are truly incredible. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all the socials where you will get the daily splatter right to your feed. And check us out at Digital Darkness, our new YouTube gaming channel hosted by Alien X Gaming. Remember, you too can help combat the evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing that bell as if it was a UA Bowl waving a new game adaption script to all the latest (laughs) updates for the show. You've got to familiarize yourself with the script. I messed up one word. (laughs) One word. It's like a Everyone thousand. has trouble talking about Uwe Bowles. I mean, yeah. the second he comes up, the room freezes. <laughs> my brain goes, ah, kind of thing. <laughs> and lastly, if you love what you do here and would like to and are able to support our production, you can through our Patreon. Because we all go to a little mad sometimes, you can show your Weekend Horror love by joining one of our subscriber tiers. Join your fellow fanatics, slashers, possessed, and mastermind patrons for all kinds of special behind-the-scenes access to the Weekend Horror Podcast. But if Patreon is not your favorite stalking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can find trailers, trivia games, horror watch parties, share your own content, and even interact directly with the crew are down in the description. As always, sharing this show with the we share the shows with the fans and your local horror community is the absolute best way to help us further our goals of global horror domination. Thank you all so much for being the greatest audience a podcast could have. I'm Eugene. I'm Aaron. And I'm JL. And we'll see you next week. And as always, stay scared. <laughs> <laughs>